Well, hello there, listeners. It's Susie New here from the Australian Society of Anesthetists, and welcome to our podcast. It's called Australian Anesthesia, and it's where we talk all things relevant to anesthesia in Australia. In this episode, I'm chatting with Mark Carmichael, who I hope is a name that you'll recognize, for he has been the CEO of the ASA for the last 10 years. I'm chatting with Mark as the outgoing CEO, and upfront, I'll say that this episode is a little bit bittersweet for me, or as Mark puts it, a nice ad. As president and chair of the board, one of the most important professional relationships one has is with the CEO, and this applies to many organizations, not just the ASA. So I can't begin to tell you all the things that Mark and I have discussed over the years. You need absolute trust and confidence in each other. And as such, he was a very influential person in my development as a leader and as president of the society, and I really am indebted to him for this. So I hope you enjoy his reflections from being in the role for 10 years, as much as I enjoyed chatting with him about these. We have a lot of fun in this conversation. It's been an incredible period of time for the ASA, and there has been much to celebrate in that time. So with that, let's get into it. for giving up some time and having a chat. I know it's a busy time for you at the moment. It was lovely seeing you at the weekend as well. Likewise. Having having a good catch up. But we're going to go back and have a little review, I suppose, of your time with the ASA and hopefully won't be too sad. It is a bit sad, Susie, I must say. So there we go. It's a nice sad though. It is a nice sad, I agree. So just to recap, when did you first start with the ASA? April 23, 2012. Wow, 2012. So 10 years. Mm-hmm. And in that time, you would have seen about five presidents come and go. Is that right? Seven. Seven. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Seven, yes. I, I won't ask you to say your favourite. Because I know you're far too diplomatic. So seven presidents. So let's go through them. Certainly. Andrew Mulcahy was president when I was appointed. And Andrew was just in the last six months of his presidency. Richard Grutzner then succeeded Andrew. Next one was Guy Christie Taylor from South Australia. David Scott became president in 2016-18. Then we had a short period with Peter Seal. And then you took the helm in 2019, right through until 2021. Unfortunately, we hardly saw each other during that period, but that's the world we lived in at the time, much to my disappointment. And then obviously, Andrew Miller became president in October 2021. So that was seven different individuals from five different states, I think, Tasmania, New South Wales, Victoria, South Australia, and Western Australia, yes. So it was only the Tassies and the Queenslanders that I missed out on. You've done an extraordinary job leading the ASA from a CEO perspective and also having to work with the various different types and styles of leaders over that time, which I think is different from the usual CEO role in a private business or a private organisation. So, well done. (laughs) Thank, Thank you. No, it has been More highs than lows, Susie, I must say. So there we go. That's good. We'll come back and talk about some of the highs a bit later. And you would have seen a few moves in property during that time. That's right. I think on day one, my predecessor, Peter Lawrence, said to me, Mark, 
we're going out to look at some properties because your first job is to buy a new property for the society. And that was when the society was based in Edgecliff. We had three suites in the commercial centre at Edgecliff, which had probably met the needs of the society over time. But I must say that the forethought of the was the council then and the executive council in looking ahead to consider the ongoing needs of the society in terms of appropriate space and office facility. So I became enmeshed in the commercial property scene in Sydney. Our first process was to sell our space at Edgecliff and then acquire new space at North Sydney. We finally moved in in 2013. And for people who don't know Sydney, where is Edgecliff? Edgecliff is on the eastern suburbs line. It's on the way to Bondi. You'd call it just on the city fringe on the eastern suburbs. You're about seven or eight minutes out of the city, so it's quite accessible. So quite close to the city, on the way to Bondi, which most people have heard of, I'm sure. (laughs) And then we moved from Edgecliff to north of the harbour. I sound like a Melbourneite when I say that, but that's how we (laughs) differentiate Melbourne, whether you're north or south of the Yarra. I'm not sure if it's the same in Sydney. I've got to say, I appreciate every time I went to the North Sydney office, you got to go over the Harbour Bridge within minutes of landing, which was just lovely. (laughs) I'm very pleased to hear you say that, Susie, because whenever I pick up visitors to Sydney, I diligently avoid coming back through the tunnel and go over the Harbour Bridge so that people can experience both the Opera House and the Harbour Bridge on their first moments in Sydney. And then you also become a bit of a commercial property magnate with us (laughs) in that you handled the transaction of selling North Sydney after buying it and then buying the new property where we are now. Yes. We were quite fortunate with North Sydney because it has become quite a a commercial hub, really. So we were fortunate that at that time we were receiving a number of, I guess you'd call them just ambit offers for the building that we were in at 121 Walker Street, North Sydney, which was a 13-storey building and we had two floors. Some of the offers started to be quite serious, so it required a meeting of owners. And as you can imagine, trying to bring 29 owners together for all disparate reasons as to why they were in the building, it was quite an exercise. And as the offers started to hot up, So did the tension among some of the owners. And I have to say, so did the sharing of information among some of the owners. And it led to a very difficult and very demanding couple of months as property developers tried to coerce people into buying. At one point, myself and one of the owners did actually go over and seek legal advice from a QC who pointed out to us that there could be issues if we were to proceed with a particular offer at that particular time based on some of the information that had been made available to us. So it was a very dynamic time, Susie. In the end, we were able to take advantage of an offer from the large property development company, Dexas. And I think we got out at the right time because it was not long after that that COVID hit. But the the process of selling North Sydney was indeed a, an interesting exercise and a very demanding one into the world of commercial property. But in the end, ASA came out with a very, very good outcome as far as that was concerned financially. Very well said there, Mark. You're very diplomatic. <laughs> and uh, I obviously know more about what happens behind the scenes and the tensions that you had to navigate. And we do owe our gratitude to you for 
hanging in there with those discussions and negotiations. So thank you. I actually want to come back to when we sold Walker Street. And do you remember I had to come up and sign the contract? They wouldn't let me do it electronically and I had to fly up to Sydney specifically. You and I both, that's one of the roles that you're not told about beforehand of the that's president. Right. <laughs> is that You are the signatory for the organisation. <laughs> and so I flew up and do you remember what I said when I asked about reading the contract? Please remind me. I'd been thinking about it and we had this time to meet and then we had an appointment with the lawyers that afternoon that we had to sign. It had to be that day and then the lawyers would then run across with the contract That's right. Uh, and it would all be exchanged and there was an appointment for the exchanging and an appointment for the signing and then, you know, I'd come into Sydney a little bit earlier and we caught up and I said, now, Mark, I was always told that when I sign a contract, I should read it. <laughs> <laughs> and then I think I even said, so do I have a chance to read the contract? And, you know, given that I represent the board as well, is there a way that we can send it to the board so that they can read it too? <laughs> do you remember that question? That's right. That's right. <laughs> do you remember your reply? <laughs> what did I say, Susie? Was I, was I diplomatic? <laughs> Very. <laughs> this, I thought this would be a good insight for our listeners who probably d may never get into it or signing a, a commercial contract, but your reply was very factual, very diplomatic, and you said, Susie, you know those big folders, the really fat ones? And I said, yep. And you said, the contract is four of those. <laughs> <laughs> and the penny dropped and I said, there's no chance I'm going to read that before this afternoon, is there? <laughs> No, that's very, very true. That, and that's why we paid some lawyers to do that. <laughs> that's what I figured. That's why we had this hour-long appointment with them to sign the contract. I remember saying that afterwards to you. I said, that's why you pay good property lawyers. They translate those four big, massive folders full of legal documents to a one-hour summary that you feel that you can confidently sign. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. And I must say, the, the, the follow-up from that, Susie, I went out to dinner that evening and I must have been quite uptight because I was sitting there, sitting there, sitting there. And finally, at about a quarter to seven, I think I got the text message to say, it's all done. Yes. And I think I must have relaxed visibly. <laughs> I think you texted me. You're like, contracts exchanged. And I was like, whew. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That was a big day. That was. And you were very diplomatic. Thank you. <laughs> For that. <laughs> well, you were being just very diligent and that was admirable, but it was <laughs> a mission impossible. Exactly. Another learning moment for me. Yep, yep. I wanted to go through during your 10 years with the ASA, there's been some big changes mm -hmm. and you thought that there's been some big developments from an IT point of view. It really, Susie, came about because of the opportunity with the moves to North Sydney and to Chandos Street in Narrenburn. The, the society at the time in Edgecliff was making do. Things were being done effectively and efficiently for what was required of the society at that time. But I think in fairness, the board recognised that there was this need to move further forward, particularly from an IT perspective, and that the move to North Sydney provided that opportunity. It allowed us to establish an IT system that was consistent across the whole business, that all of the databases, and it took time, that all of the databases were able to be consolidated so that we were able to make sure that information about members was being captured and captured accurately. 
that we were able to move into a direction where we could communicate much more efficiently with members and we saw things like the now which we take for granted our presidency news or a policy update happening or a invitation for a particular event all of which comes out apparently quite seamlessly but mm. is done with a lot of efficiency and and feverish work by the staff in the background oh, definitely yeah it was those sorts of efficiencies that started to come into the business susie and that really came about because the board wanted those things to happen and provided the financial capacity to be able to do it. And we had the individual staff able to move it forward, sometimes not at the pace that people might have liked, but we actually managed to keep it happening and keep it going. Another advantage or another significant change there was the actual move for members to be able to pay their renewal or for events or whatever online. That made things a whole lot easier for members and we've moved that into monthly payments and those sorts of things, all of which is designed to make things easier for the members. And it's an ongoing exercise. So it's never a situation that has just been done and uh, forgotten. There is constantly keeping an eye on what is happening, what the banks are doing or what the credit card companies are doing. But in fairness, the capacity of the society to communicate with the members, as I said, whether it be through a policy matter, whether it be through an e-news, whether it be through a COVID update, all of that has come as a consequence of the forward thinking of the board and looking to make the society that much more efficient and member focused. I suspect there was also a lot of work on behalf of yourself and the team that went into that and very much appreciated from not just the members, but also everyone who's been involved with writing any of those emails. Assume in the time being quite a few staff changes. There have been, and it's always a difficult thing trying to attract good people. And sometimes when you attract good people, it's a problem because you know they're good people and you know that they are going to learn from their role with the society and then move on. I do think one of the best things that we've ever done at the Society, Susie, from an HR perspective, was the use of external consultants in gaining salary comparisons for who ASA is, what size organisation are we, what positions that we have, what are the expectations of those positions, and how would that compare to like organisations out there. And by being able to have that sort of information available, it made it quite easy to be able to say to staff, here's where you fit on the continuum. If you're comfortable with that, that's great. If you want a bigger role externally, well, you can chase it because maybe ASA can't compete with that. But I think over time, the majority of staff, certainly in the last two to three years, have been very happy with their role at ASA. And as a consequence, you tend to see that we have staff here who have been here some longer than me, some 14 and 15 years. But we've got a number of staff here now who have been here that four to eight year period, which does give you a core of, of knowledge, a core of trust, and a core of people who you know you can rely on to get things done. And I would think, Susie, that that was one of the great strengths for us during the COVID and remote working situation where people who were good at their jobs or who knew their jobs were able to keep things going and 
bring in a fair bit of innovation as well as to how we manage things, particularly in the finance department, which doesn't always get a lot of kudos, but there there were some big changes there. But I think ASA has had some very, very good staff during the time that I've been here. And I think that the team that is here at the moment is really a very committed and dedicated group. And um, I'm sure that my successor will make changes and will make improvements. But I think one of the things that they will be able to rely on will be that the staff will be able to undertake their tasks in a positive and trustworthy way. Definitely. We have a fantastic team there at 86 Chandler Street. Now, speaking of finances, we also had a few changes in the way that we handle our investments. We did. And uh, if there was something that kept me awake at night in my early times at ASA, it was the fact that we were quite a solvent organisation and yet it was all managed internally. We were relying on the knowledge and goodwill of one of our very, very financially savvy members, there's no doubt about that, but it was that idea that, wow, that's a lot of responsibility to be putting in the hands of one individual and it was also to the fact of a governance issue of whether the board were comfortable with that. And I guess it was timely when there was a change in our treasurer and the board were very open to the idea of engaging external consultants to manage our financial capacity. And to take that exercise out to market was very good because we had the opportunity to interview a number of the commercial groups. And when we settled on Credit Suisse, that was in itself a very positive exercise because they were very keen to understand the risk appetite that the society had. They made some very, very sound and strong advice early on, even before they had the contract. And by being able to engage with them, we were in a situation where what we were paying was less than what we were paying for a staff member to do it. And the returns that they've been able to generate over time have been significant for the society. But I also think it's done in a way that the board and the members should feel comfortable that probably the greatest asset of the organisation in terms of its ongoing capability is being managed prudently and with respect to the needs of the organisation. And I think that has been one of the, the big steps and big changes within the ASA in my time, Susie. Yeah, definitely reassuring as a board member, not only to have good ROI or return on investment, but also good governance around that. Mm. And speaking of good governance, one of the major changes was the constitutional review that you would have overseen. Hmm. It was. And that's something that I actually look back on with significant pride, Susie, because again, I think that was part of the evolution of the organisation, which will continue into the future, no doubt. But again, it was the idea of recognising that the world had changed as far as how organisations need to be run and can be run best of all. And I think it was the recognition that some of our council members at the time hadn't realised their exposure. They joined their state committee and became a state chair to organise anaesthesia-related events, not to realise that they were actually at-risk individuals for the welfare of the entire society. And the fact that the society is very committed to the director education through the Institute of Company Directors course, it made it a very easy discussion 
that board could see that this was a positive direction to take the organisation out of the process which had worked very, very well previously through a council with an executive council making decisions on behalf of everyone to actually flip it over, create a board that was responsible for the business of the society but certainly still maintain the council structure which was very much focused on the, the policies and the standards and the activities of the anaesthesia profession. So I think we got the best of both worlds with the, the move to a smaller board and then the maintenance of the ongoing council structure, which looks at our economic issues, our professional issues, and those things which affect anaesthetists on a day-to-day -day basis, Susie. And I'd congratulate past president Guy Christie Taylor because Guy was was very keen on on making that move and bringing it through and it was he who had to stand up at the AGM with all of the constitutional amendments and present them and it was a very very exciting time. It's a bit sad, isn't it, when you get excited about a constitutional review? <laughs> <laughs> but I got excited. <laughs> I joined the board on the back end, I suppose, of those discussions, the new constitution had just been approved. So it definitely gives some reassurance as a board member coming in how the ASA is structured. Yep. So well done. I can see that it is very exciting because it just <laughs> provides reassurance for the organisation going forwards. Yeah, and it's interesting, Susie, when you look back over a period of 10 years and think, what did ASA look like when I started? And what does ASA look like when you walk out the door? It's kind of nice to be able to look back and say it has shifted and there's some of the things that have happened. Definitely. How would you, if you had a few words to summarise what it looked like when you first picked up the keys to the office <laughs> <laughs> compared to now? Look, in a few words, I would say in 2012, it was an organisation of its time that was ripe and ready to, to take a next step. Everything was working and working well. There wasn't a problem with that, but the, the board at the time could see into the future. And I think that's been, well, a very lovely thing that the board was wanting to go that way and that over time we've been able to implement a number of those things so that it is now an organisation, hopefully of its time now, and it'll be interesting to see in 10 years where it's gone again, Susie. It'll continue to grow and it'll continue to evolve and it'll continue to meet the challenges and the opportunities that will exist between now and 2030. If you did have a crystal ball... What do you think some of those changes might be over the next 10 years or so? Mm. Yeah, that's, that's a good, good question, Susie. I would think that ASA has the capacity to become a real leader. We've got these wonderful webinars that happen for the trainees at the moment. We're very conscious of different groups within the society needing educational offerings and I think we're starting to stream these things into categories for new fellows, older fellows, all of those things. What I would see into the future would be that there may well be a time, and hopefully in the not too distant future, that there would be a person with clinical expertise within the society who also has educational expertise, and that the ASA takes the opportunity that has been offered now through Zoom and webinar and those sorts of facilities with the IT capacity to start becoming a regular point of education for our members. I also see it becoming even more 
of a force in the area of advocacy, Susie. And I don't just mean advocacy to government per se on economic issues or professional issues. I look at issues like the gender debate, access in the community, the well-being of members and, and their families. I see all of those things being very much under the, the umbrella that ASA has the capacity to provide in the next five to 10 years for its members. So I think the future is very exciting. And in one sense, after you get over the emotional drain of COVID, <laughs> you look ahead and say, maybe that's where the society will go, but you know, maybe not. But I do think that that's where there are certainly opportunities for the society, Susie. And I think if people like you stay involved for a while, that evolution will continue. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. Thanks for those kind words. I think that sounds great. I certainly hope the society does continue to move in those directions because we are already getting a lot of momentum in those areas. So mm -hmm. it would be good to see that continue, definitely. I said at the start I'd come back to this, which is what do you think have been the main highlights of your time? on a professional, personal, everything sort of level? <laughs> Look, working with the seven presidents has been a, a very educative and valuable experience because it does just show how committed people are to their profession. And you stand back from my position and realise that every single one of those people, and indeed every one of the people who gets involved with the society, has their daytime job. They're, they're doing this as an extra but for many, it strikes me that it's almost more, it almost supplants their daytime job with the amount of time and effort and energy and genuine commitment that is given over to it. So I would have to say, Susie, that the, that has been a very, very inspiring thing. And it's, and it's also a point from where I sit, a very encouraging thing, because you realise that you are involved in an organisation where the people care. And that's a great motivator as well. So a highlight for me has been to be involved with the different presidents and to see the, the different issues that they've been confronted with and how they've played those out with the membership and with whoever has been contacted, whether it be government or other institutions. And I think, Susie, without um, wanting to embarrass you, the last... The last COVID period has, has, has probably <laughs> oh, yeah. reflected that. As I've said before, I often think about World War II and Winston Churchill and all of those sorts of things and people, John Curtin, and people say you get the leader you need at the time. And I think ASA was, <laughs> was very fortunate to have the leader that we had at the time. And so that was just a, a real personification of the dedication and commitment to the profession and the society that I found very, very motivating and very enjoyable. Susie. Mark. From a personal perspective, I guess it's some of those things we've touched off. The, the constitutional review, which to me was, was very, very important. Certainly our property evolution, which provided really the basis for our infrastructure modifications within the society, which allows us to do things more appropriately for the members. It's very nice when you get a comment from a member who goes, I like the way you've designed that. And that's a real compliment. And I think, too, one of the other aspects that I really enjoyed, Susie, was our common issues groups. Okay. To, to see the different issues around the world and to hear how they were being managed. I think one of my very first meetings, which was in London, the issue of managed care was discussed. And here we are 10 years later, beginning to see the, the threat of managed care here in the Australian scene. And it's 
the capacity or the opportunity to have had that discussion over a longer period, I think is going to equip the society well to be able to present its case however this debate works out. But it's been those sorts of things, Susie. And I guess I, from a other perspective, it has been the, the financial security of the organisation. To see that grow as comfortably and as strongly as it has over time, I do feel a, a degree of satisfaction in relation to that. That's some lovely highlights. I'd be keen to hear your perspective on this, but they say that with each presidency, there's usually been an issue or something that's come up. Do you feel like you're in a position to make a comment about what each of the presidents have had to tackle over their time? Yeah, look, I do. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good question. I think with Andrew Mulcahy, I certainly only came in at the end of Andrew's presidency. But I remember there we were down in Hobart at the NSC and overnight there'd been an announcement about the Medicare rebates for Defence Force personnel changed dramatically with the changing of the contract. And there was Andrew fronting the press, making a very, very concise and erudite argument about why that shouldn't happen. So that issue sticks in my head for Andrew. I guess Richard Grutzner and Guy Christie Taylor, both of them were confronted with the workforce issue, the argument about whether there were too many anaesthetists and how services could be delivered. And both of them, I would say, were very much part of that. Guy had the joy of adding the MBS review to the end of his presidency as Susan Lay started to be our point of contact way back in 2016. And then, of course, the MBS review hit like a like an earthquake, I guess, from the period that David M. Scott took over as president. And um, like you, Susie, with the COVID circumstance, David spent an inordinate amount of time speaking to Department of Health, to Minister Hunt, to his advisors. I remember a day that we went over to Adelaide and effectively reviewed the, the RVG about where we stood on absolutely every point. And Andrew Mulcahy, Mark Sinclair, David, myself, and I apologise if there's anyone that I've forgotten who was part of that meeting. But at the end of the day, I remember David looking at me and saying, I just can't believe we've reviewed the whole RVG <laughs> in one day. And did own, we did our own MBS review. Yeah, we did our own RBG, MBS review. RVG review. Correct. Was Alicia Dennis at that meeting? No, Alicia wasn't at that one. We engaged Alicia subsequently, and you're right. It was the, the support of people like um, Alicia and David A. Scott and David Story and the whole mm. group who just got it was involved. It a real but team the, effort, wasn't it? It, it was. And, and I have to say, Susie, it was a very exciting time to be sitting in this chair, Mm. you know, because you realise that it was impacting on the healthcare system in Australia in a significant way. And hats off to David for the amount of time and energy and effort that he put into it. And I think we got a a sound result at the end of it. It's not perfect. We know it's still ongoing. And not everybody agreed with the stances that were taken. But in an organisation of 4,000 people, that's probably par for the course. And Mm. then, of course, Susie, we moved on to yourself and um, (laughs) the whirlwind that it was (laughs) do we really need to say anything other than COVID-19 exactly Uh, (laughs) exactly. let's leave it there but I think members should appreciate or understand that your role in that from the society's perspective the drawing together of the resource 
teams to develop resources. Out of nowhere, you created working parties and that was the phrase of your presidency, a working party. That and was my, yep. <laughs> and the, and the, res- the COVID resources that are currently on the ASA website, they sit up there as an ASA COVID resource, but I think it really should be fair that members should recognise that they should have the name Susie knew very much at the bottom of them. It was a team, team effort for that one. But no, it, so I think, Susie, that probably encapsulates <laughs> each of the president's roles. And on top of that, you add in all the other general things that, that roll along across your table. And uh, there was a fair bit that's happened over the period from 2012 to 2022. What a lovely recap. What a lovely chat we've had this morning about that time in the ASA history and also about your experience in your time with us. It is a bit sad <laughs> and I sad, as you said. I do wish you all the very best in your new role as you move over to CEO of RANSCO, Thank the you. College of Ophthalmologists. So that sounds like a really exciting role. And of course, we'll keep in contact and watch how you progress over there. I'm sure you'll bring strength to their organisation like you did to ours. Thank you very much, Susie, and thank you. It's been a pleasure doing the interview this morning and it's been a pleasure working with you and and everybody else associated with ASA. It's been, as I said, by and large, a lot of fun. Lovely. Thanks, Mark. This episode of the Australian Anesthesia Podcast was produced by the Australian Society of Anesthetists, otherwise known as the ASA. More episodes can be found on the ASA website, asa at asa.org.au. Don't forget to follow or subscribe to receive the latest episodes. And of course, you're welcome to share them as widely as you wish. Please send any feedback to the ASA by emailing asa at asa.org.au. Music was by Mark Suss, and we hope you enjoyed listening.